Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Well, good morning. Welcome to the oven that is the Mount Church. Let me invite you to open a Bible, your Bible, to John chapter 11. Uh, We've been in John for about nine months. We took a break over the course of the summer for a couple of months. Now we're back into it, and we're just going to start right where we left off in John chapter 11. And this morning, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 27. That'll be the focus of our study together. So John chapter 11, John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So... When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, 
God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. With that, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We do pray that it would, in full measure, by the power of your spirit and the mercy of your own heart, do everything that it is meant to do. Console our hearts by the power and the person of Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Don't you love those who think they know everything about everything. In the melting pot of uh, the autonomous self, post-modernity, hermeneutic of suspicion, general suspiciousness, and search engines. That hasn't helped the cause. Uh, It's all Google's fault, really. But seriously, we've, we've never had more access, right, to detailed information about almost any and everything in existence. And Considering that in league with our own indwelling kind of pride, an illusion can sometimes then be created in which we, like the ancient Babylonians, you think Tower of Babel, believe that we can see above the sun. We can be God. If desired, given enough time, there's nothing we can't eventually figure out. And theologians, which we all are, for better or for worse, are not exempt from this temptation. And yet, That's in no way to say we shouldn't seek to know and believe as much as we possibly can. At the end of his life, it was the Apostle Peter who was exhorting the church to what? Keep on growing. Keep on growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so there is a sense in which the Christian is to be always increasing as only the Christian can in knowing Jesus. Always humbly, always readily, always faithfully. And our text today is case in point. In a gospel, meaning to generate true faith in Jesus by an author, John, whose MO so far has been to define that faith by highlighting illegitimate faith. We now have a family that's famous, that's known for having the warmest and readiest model of true faith in Jesus. They love Jesus so very much. They love Jesus so deeply. They sit on his every word. If you think of Mary, they sit on his every word. And they, this family, they don't know everything to know about Jesus. Isn't that strangely marvelous? It implies, dear ones, that Jesus is the only person in existence with heights to meet the depths of our souls. He is glorious, Literally to no end. 
And what's more, that we needn't know everything about him perfectly well to really and truly know him. Isn't that good? What mercy. Now again though, we will want to know Christ as well as we possibly can know him. There will be times in our lives when Jesus comes to us, as here and by his word says to us, I know you know me. I know you believe in me. But do you believe this? Do you believe this? We don't know all we do need to know the way we will want to know it about the Lord we really do love. For instance, what will you want to believe most confidently, most assuredly, most absolutely when, say, a loved one, when, say, a brother dies? What would you want to believe most absolutely when, say, you Come to die. Our text is a good place to start. So, let's go there and consider first. True faith and the purposing love of Jesus, picking up in verse 1. Where we're given to wrestle, we're given to wrestle with this line of thinking. How neither our love to Christ, nor Christ's love to us, exempts us from life's bitterest trials. The love of God has ordained a purpose that's greater than smooth sailing. In fact, in this world, that purpose is often helped along by the experience of tidal waves that rise far above and then over our souls. So see it together in the text where we meet a certain man named Lazarus and John links Lazarus right off the bat to Martha and to Mary. He's their brother, though John's focus is first on these two sisters. Ask the question, why is that? Why does he focus immediately on these sisters? It would appear to be because of their famous devotion to Jesus. Mary, if you don't know, was the one who anointed Jesus with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Mary loved Jesus. And these sisters, they loved Jesus. And by the manner of their love, that love was intensely personal and humble and sacrificial and deep, and it was ready to believe Jesus all the time. And we see that in verse 3. You see, the issue in the text is their brother Lazarus has fallen ill. In fact, I think we can say he's on the brink of death when they sinned for Jesus. And from Martha's words in verse 21, it appears that their sending was not to have Jesus' condolences. It was for His mighty mercies. They believed Jesus could raise Lazarus from his sickbed. Now, I don't think that means they didn't pursue other means of treatment for Lazarus or that they wouldn't have done whatever they could to see their brother spared. Just that, in the end, amid all other hopes, Sending for Jesus was what stood out to them. Getting Jesus to the bedside was most important to them. Their brother's life, they believed, laid finally in the hands of Jesus. That's the Bible's view of our lives and our deaths. 
are living and are dying. Do we share that view? Do we commit our lives and our deaths and everything in between to Jesus, the Lord of life and death? As we live and move and have our being from day to day, do we look above all to Jesus? That's what these sisters did. They looked to Jesus. They were women of exemplary faith in Christ. But so, what I think John is doing by quickly tying or linking Lazarus, not just to them by birth, but to their devotion by new birth, is simply to say, this is a family trait. What you see of Martha and Mary, you also see of Lazarus. Lazarus also deeply loved Jesus, and yet Lazarus had fallen ill. You need to know, dear ones, there is a prosperity theology out there suggesting that faith in Jesus makes a person innocuous to illness. Or worse, as I've actually personally witnessed, uh, being taught to dementia patients in an assisted living facility, that if you only have more faith, or that if you only have greater faith than what you are, than what you are currently exercising, you're going to be spared that, or you're going to be healed from that. And I just want to say, that's straight up from the pit of hell. Still, more subtly in common, though, we can also fall into the trap of thinking that we're ill or that we're troubled in our life because we just kind of stink as Christians. Okay? If I just loved Jesus more, I'd absolutely know more earthly comforts. And again, I just want to say, you need to let all of that die the death it needs to die. This was a family with a renowned faith in Jesus, a dependent and desperate love for Jesus. And Lazarus was sick, and he's going to be allowed to pass away. Our love for Christ does not exempt us from life's bitterest trials. But here's, I hope, a great comfort. Neither is our love for Christ judged by the experience of life's bitterest trials. Lazarus is just one of many people in the Bible whose suffering says simply that we live in a fallen world that God has promised to recreate through the grace of Jesus Christ. It says nothing about Lazarus' life other than underscoring the faith and the hope and the love that he shares with his sisters for Jesus. In this world, devoted people also die. Sort of. When Jesus hears, Lord, he whom you love is ill. He responds, this illness, verse 4, does not lead to death. It, this illness, is for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, that first bit is a little odd because Lazarus is what? He is going to die. 
So we'll need to understand what Jesus means by he's not going to die. But before we come to that, we have to deal with this, a divine purpose. A divine purpose in our text. A purposing love. A love with a purpose that is greater than ease of life. A love with a purpose that is greater even than our earthly lives themselves, apparently. A love with a purpose that is greater often than than our ability to comprehend it in the moment. Which is why it is such a blessing to be able to think through it together right here and right now. To be specific with it, Lazarus' illness and his eventual death are things that were appointed by God to show the world that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Among many things, I want us to hear in that. None of our suffering is meaningless. Maybe you've thought that before. None of our suffering is without purpose. The exact opposite. What we're seeing in the text is that it flows from divine love and is inextricably infused with divine purpose. And at the head of that purpose is the glory, the magnificence of Jesus. Take that home with you. By this story, John is saying that the whole issue of our living and dying are at the disposal of Jesus Christ's power for the display of Jesus Christ's glory issuing from the depths of Jesus Christ's love. Let me say that again. The whole issue of our living and dying are at the disposal of Christ's power for the display of Christ's glory issuing from the depths of Christ's love. And by what Jesus says and does, John seems to think it critical to assert it is all streaming from the love of Christ. It's hard to believe that in the moment. It's nonetheless true. Do you see that in verses 3 and then verse 5? Jesus' purpose statement in verse 4 is the farthest thing from cold and unfeeling. Friends, listen, we're coming out of John 10. I know it's been a couple months, but we're coming right out of John 10 here. Jesus is the good shepherd. Do you remember this? He's the good shepherd. He loves his sheep. He knows them. He's going to lay down his life for them. He gives them eternal life. He won't suffer a single one of them to be lost or taken or perishable. Jesus loves his people. Jesus loves Lazarus and his sisters. No one in the universe loves more than Jesus. It's just that, this. Our notions of love tend to be very weak, very small, and very short-sighted. Who would have thought that God's love would give its supreme expression in Christ crucified for sinners? The quick answer there is nobody but God. So here, 
we tend to think if someone has the ability to end suffering, but then they don't end that suffering with the ability they have, their decision must be unloving. But all that really shows is that we're not God. Who, we confess, is love. See how it's out of Christ's love for this family that verse 6, he instantly sprints to Bethany. Got to save him before he dies. No, that's not what he does. Out of his love, he stays where he is two days longer. Our notions of love will never be able to handle that until they are handled by this. That the most loving thing God can do for us is by all means necessary enrich our view of who Jesus is. Fact is, we know Jesus could have spared Lazarus Lazarus with a word from right where he was. We've seen that already in the gospel. He might have gone instantly and perhaps made it in time to revive him on sight. He does not do either of those things because he loves them. Because he loves the Father and only does what the Father does when the Father does it. Because Jesus is God himself, the Son, perfect in love, he waits. He lets illness issue in death. He delays to display to us His glory. That is love. Dear ones, I think we'll find it often so that late to us is right on time to God. His love is never late. It's a love that's purposed the whole of our lives for our ideal good and His eternal glory. And, here we go, the eventual response, not the immediate, always, but the eventual response of authentic faith to that in the midst of our pain will be not the loss, but the gain of love and trust in Him. So, as we come to our second point, we'll see that that right there will be essential for following Jesus in this world. The point is now about true faith and the steadying hand of Jesus. Advancing to verse 7. If you look there at God's time, Jesus calls his disciples to go with him again into Judea, and I think their response is some part care for Jesus and some part we're really cowardly. And I think we can probably empathize with that, right? They say, verse 8, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you privy to that? And are you going there again? They're like, are you sure you want to do that? Mixed with some, maybe we'll sit this one out. And the point that develops is this. You are like to see little of Christ's glory without seeing a lot of Christ's cross. And so you've got to prepare to be rightly optimistic in your endurance. Okay? So Jesus gives a parable in verses 9 and 10. Simple enough. He says, The day gives light 
the night gives darkness. If you walk in the day, you won't stumble. If you walk in the night, you will stumble. And this is all about walking with Christ, the light of the world, in a world without light. It's supposed to be a word of comfort to them. We want to follow Jesus, don't we? We want to follow Jesus, but for such a thing, we know that the world has its stones gathered up in a sling. So, we're going to have to persevere. We're going to have to endure. How can we do it? How can we overcome all the obstacles that stand in the way of faithfulness to Jesus? Jesus looks at them and essentially says, by keeping all eyes on me, the light of the world. When we are pressed hard on the truth, when we're fearful of taking a stand with Jesus, when we're tempted to go the path of least resistance in relating to those who live and breathe sin and death and lies, Jesus holds out His steadying hand and says, keep your eyes on Me. Beloved, are we following the One who holds the keys to life and death? We are. We are. So, if that's the case, what need have we to fear? Death. What need are we to fear what's dark? If the light in us is truly the light, the darkness is not overcome, as is the case. And as then Jesus assumes His people will be, how might we be newly emboldened for Jesus this week? Think about in your job. Think about in your class. Think about on campus. Whatever it is. Maybe it's at home. How might we be newly emboldened for Jesus this week? I imagine there are many ways we could be, but in your various circles, I just want you to think directly for just a second, how could you be more courageous for Christ today? Now again, I will say, when it comes to such endurance, one thing that will need our attention is what we've already said. We're going to have to keep all eyes on Jesus. Or, said another way, is to have our optimism about enduring rightly placed. So, After saying what he said, he advances. If you look at verse 11, he says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Man, isn't it wonderful to see how Christ will go through stones to get to his people? Indeed, what are stones to one who will go through the cross to raise his people? Right? And it is that power that he here assumes in our text. Only Jesus can ably speak of death as a nap from which He can awaken us. Talk about defanging this enemy. Talk about removing the sting. Talk about mocking a very great champion. What people generally fear most, Jesus almost makes inviting. I'm just going to tell you, this afternoon, a nap sounds really good to me. Christian, there is so much consolation here if we truly understand and believe it. Alas, these disciples don't yet quite get it. They believe, but they don't quite get it. Per custom, 
what Jesus means and then what they perceive are not the same. What they hear is that all is bound to be well with Lazarus, and they rejoice in that. He's going to recover. So they become optimistic. And so from this news, this good news, they're like, yes, all right, everything's going to be good. Only that wasn't actually the news that Jesus shared with them. Their optimism is wrongly placed. It's in the good news of a natural remedy, a natural hope, when what Jesus has intended is the good news of a supernatural one that only He can perform. And dear ones, this is where Jesus always wants us to be. It is critical for a true and thus enduring Christianity that we learn how to depend upon Jesus Christ. (laughs) I know that's revolutionary, right? We've got to learn how to depend on Jesus. It shouldn't be revolutionary, but, but, examine your life. Does your life look like one that hopes more in man or in Christ? Does your life look like one that hopes more in pragmatism or in prayer? Do our lives look changed? They look different from what they used to be. Do they look resurrected? Do they resemble those in Hebrews 11 who did all that they did because why? They believed in the resurrection of the dead. Do they resemble the apostle who said his aim in life was, quote, to know Christ and the power of His resurrection? That had him thrown into the arena. It had him beating his body to keep from sin. It had him dying every day, he says, so that souls might be saved and the church might be strengthened from one place to another and so on. Did anyone know more trouble for Jesus than Paul? No, because Jesus told him at the beginning, you're going to suffer more than anybody for me. And what by his own lips did Paul learn? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, it was to make us rely not upon ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Indeed, that is, Romans 4, 17, the very foundation stone of all true and biblical faith. Reliance upon God who raises the dead. So, to get to that, Jesus lets them down. You see that? He brings all worldly hope to a crashing halt precisely that their optimism might be justifiably fixed on Him alone. He tells them, very simply, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus has died. That's a crashing halt. That's a crushing halt. I have a pastor friend, uh, I don't know, about a decade or so ago, I guess, at this point. Uh, He went to bed with his wife one night. seemed to be all well and good. 
He woke up, and she had passed away in the night, 36 years old. I'll just tell you that sleep and death are not the same thing. There was no rousing her, right? I wake up in the morning, Jenny's beside me, I can, you know, she's snoring and all this kind of thing, I can, I can wake her up eventually. I, it's hard sometimes. Uh, but in this instance, his wife's body had stopped working at some point in the night. Then and there, I can tell you, the only hope, the only relief, the only basis for optimism is Jesus. And in verse 15, we're forced again to reckon with the fogginess of our ability to know God's good designs. I mean, just picture it here. Jesus has just told them their dear friend has died, crushing halt. And in the same breath, he then says, he's glad that he wasn't there. Why? Talk about elevating something. So that you all may believe. That's crazy. Believe what? Believe verses 25 and 26. Or, more to this section, that whether they live or die in the service of Jesus, they might do it readily and sacrificially, believing and recalling this, I go as only I can to awaken Him. That to Christ alone belongs all authority and power and grace to raise the dead. That no matter the tidal waves He calls us to bear, His is the only real steadying hand. There is. And God loved Thomas. (laughs) That doubting man. And here, what doubtful bravery, I think we can say. He hears these words and responds the way we might. Verse 16, all right. Let us also go that we may die with him. Because they are going to stone us. So he's revved up as much as one can be for a martyr's death, and yet he's missed the point how faithless our fearlessness can sometimes be. As at the end, so here Thomas is ready to die with Jesus, absent the realization that Jesus is actually going to raise the dead. Martyrdom for martyrdom's sake is very different than walking bravely with Jesus. In short, while admirable, Thomas doesn't know what in the world he's saying. They cannot die Jesus' death. Nor has that been the call. Nor when it might be, will any of them stick it out? They're all going to run away (laughs) because they're cowards. Believers, but they're cowardly. In his words, there is no hint of resurrection hope. We're going to go and we're going to die. That's it. 
props to Thomas for preferring to die with Jesus over living without Jesus. But Thomas is, alas, really just a bridge to the greater faith of Martha and to us and to our third and final point about true faith and the consoling word of Jesus. We pick up in verse 17. Jesus has arrived in Bethany where Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Now, that four days there, that's significant because according to a superstitious Judaism, the soul of a person hovered over their deceased body for three days. For three days, seeking to re-enter it until it was clear by their decaying that that wasn't going to happen. And then it was gone. So again, for what God wants done, God knows best. His timing is always right. It's not been three days, it's now been four days that he's been in that tomb. That's on purpose. If Lazarus is to eventually live on, it will not have been a resuscitation. Friends, again, Christ will often not do He will often not do what he or presumably someone else could have done in order to do what only he can for the sake of our faith in him. So, in that direction, we see in verse 19 that the Jews had come to the sisters to console them about Lazarus. And I do want us to be careful not to disparage that outright in their own minds Charity suggests they do mean to do well for them here. It's just that as we'll see next week, that consolation they offer is hardly consoling. Because while it may contain ideas of resurrection, it almost certainly circumvents, goes around, or all out denies Jesus. That is their consolations because at best, disbelieving amounted to little more than just wishing upon a star. In actuality, they did not believe the things they might have said to Martha or to Mary. Ultimately, Lazarus, they thought, was done and gone once and then for all. And they pat each other on the back talking about, oh, one fine day, but in their hearts. It's as if death has gained a forever victory. How many of us today live as if Death finally reigns. How many of us are are functional annihilationists? How many of us are functional nihilists? This is it. All there is. Once dead, we're done. That's what makes life so special. (laughs) Be comforted by that. Jesus would have a word. They've come and brought their consolations, and now Jesus comes bringing his. Martha goes out to meet him, and in verses 21 and 22, we're met by an expression of her greater faith. Even though he's late, she believes. Had he been there, Jesus would have saved Lazarus' life. And that even then, her trust in him is apparently unwavering. He didn't show up on her time, and her brother has died. He could have revived him from illness, but he didn't, and still she believes in him. 
She believes in him best that she can just then. In other words, from how she responds later in verse 39, we're not going to get to it, but in verse 39, I don't think she's thinking, Jesus can raise my brother from the dead right now. When she says in verse 22, I know God will give you whatever you ask him. I think it's more like, I believe that if you had been here while he was ill but alive, he would still be alive and well. You weren't here, but I don't hold that against you. I still believe in you. I think that's what she's saying here. That's the extent of her true faith to this point. And Jesus now means to stretch that true faith and the peace in believing infinitely further. So he says to her, verse 23, your brother, he's going to rise again. And she hears that, as any orthodox Israelite might hear that, as a consolation about the last day. Maybe the, all those uh, the folks that had come and given them consolation before, maybe that's what they're saying. Oh, the resurrection of the last day. God's day of judgment and the final resurrection of the just. It's about that eschatological event, which is a real thing, directed by Jesus. Now, listen, if you've grown up in church and you've read all these Bible stories and stuff like that, we cannot allow ourselves to hear that as just like old hat. We might have heard it so much for so long that we don't feel the jolt that we ought to feel in hearing that the man Christ Jesus will be directing God's day of recompense one way or the other. And that remarkably, it is more than an event that he directs. It is a person that he alone is. Do you see what he says to Martha? Martha, I am the resurrection (laughs) and the life. That is crazy. I am the resurrection and the life. From first to last and last to forever, death, this mighty champion, has to deal with Jesus. A person. Here's how he puts it for us in verses 25 and 26. He says, I am the resurrection. Meaning, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I will raise him up. And I am the life. Not just the resurrection, but also the life. Meaning also, everyone who lives. I don't think he just means like physical life. Everyone who is born again and believes in me shall never die. In that configuration, he's saying at least, I am the sovereign of spiritual life. I am the sovereign of physical life. I am the sovereign of eternal life. I give new birth. I give life at present that no death can conquer. And yes, I also at the last will raise the dead and give my own believers in me new creation immortality. And as a type and foretaste of it all, as we'll see, he will right then, 
raise Lazarus up from the dead. What only God can do, Jesus is about to do. Come back next week. Okay? He's about to do it. Only just before it, he concludes with Martha. Here it is. Martha, do you believe this? Dear ones, do you and I, do we believe this? Do we really? Because Martha does and doesn't. (laughs) It takes time to grow into our affirmations of faith, doesn't it? And I trust you'll find it comforting that Jesus allows us time for that. Martha does believe the import of what he's revealed. You see there in verse 27, he, uh, she says, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. But again, it's who's coming into the world. She's thinking the end. Still, how gracious Jesus is with the highest expressions of the greatest believer's faith in him. what he most immediately means is that he brings in himself the consolation of no mere man. He can and will raise Lazarus from not just his sickbed, but from his deathbed. He will raise Lazarus from his tomb, and not in a matter of eons, not in a matter of ages, not just at the last day, but right there in a matter of minutes so that we will all know and have it to believe to our dying day that as He's already raised our souls, Jesus will also raise our bodies from the dead. Because we live and believe, though we die, we will live with Christ until at last He makes us whole again, body and soul, to be with God in a deathless world forever. And friend, I'd have you see the basis for it. He doesn't say these things without knowing full well the requirement of it. Christ came into the world And he lived without sin, which means he defeated spiritual death. He never sinned. He defeated spiritual death. And yet, he died. And not just any death. He died our deaths. His death was for the many. And having satisfied God's wrath against us, having made atonement for our sins on the cross... He finally breathed his last and was laid in a grave that could not hold him. God raised him from the dead. And when God did that, he did not raise him up as Lazarus, who will die again. He raised him up as the Savior of sinners, never to die again. Incorruptible, immortal, eternal. Oh, that you would believe it if you're unbelieving this morning. Believe it. Be saved by it. Be saved by Him. And then come to us and let us rejoice with you 
that He has given you life. Beloved, let us press on to know Him. There is more to know. (laughs) Let us press on to know Him and the power of His resurrection. It really is meant for our peace in believing. Not just our believing, you hear that? Not just our believing, but our peace in believing. Hard things are going to come into our lives. And when they do, it will do us well to believe that Jesus loves us on purpose with a hand always ready to steady us and a greatest truth always to console us. Keep your eyes on me. I am the resurrection and the life. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Oh, we pray now that you would bury it deep within our hearts and that it would produce again the comfort, the consolation, the joy, the peace in believing that you mean it to accomplish. We ask it for your glory. In Jesus' name.